From Chagdagumpa Riggs and Ling, this is Listen, Contemplate, Meditate, a podcast featuring a range of teachings from the Buddhist tradition presented by Lamas of Chagdagumpa Foundation. Our website is chagdagumpa.org. Eat this uh, offering, talk, or even not even when you eat it, even just to look at it, you know, you, all your concepts come up, you know, like what's, many concepts arise, I, I assume, and uh, in the context of uh, meditation practice of this uh, then you notice that your judgment mind has reared up and starts talking to you in a judgmental way if at that point you can see that and let it go, then we say uh, that it's been liberated. And every time when you taste something, judgment of mind comes up, sweet, sour, this, that, uh, good, not good, organic, not organic, uh, all these concepts come up. Uh, if you look at those concepts and let them go, then you, it's called you, you liberate them through taste. We have all these sense, sense uh, faculties, sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch, sensation. And there's this judgment mind uh, comes up. uh, Together with concepts. We have a concept and then we have a judgment. Prejudice, basically. Uh, So we can release the habit of judgments and concepts through meditation and apply meditation to everything we do, everything we see, everything we hear, everything we touch. It doesn't have to be at a special time when we sit down and meditate. Meditation really means becoming used to something. In the word, in, I don't know, in Tibetan, the gong means meditation, but meditation means to get used to, to become familiar with something. If you're not familiar with something, it's very hard to pay attention to it or to focus on it, because you're not familiar with it. So meditation means getting familiar with it. And when you become familiar with it, then not being distracted 
Uh, right now we're very familiar with our judgments. There are entourage. They were everywhere we go, they follow us. Just like uh, Obama. <laughs> you know, everywhere Obama goes, then his entourage follows. Even you don't see most of them, probably. But they're there. The same, we look at something, we taste something, we hear something, and our entourage is there with us, informing us, or protecting our ego from assassination. You know? So meditation is exactly like that. <laughs> it's noticing what has been there all along, but we didn't notice it. Usually in meditation, then there's some... In order to be able to notice what we didn't notice before, we need some... What would it be? We need some counterbalance to particularly notice, so that we notice when we are not noticing that. Hmm. Okay. Refresh. We need some counterbalance so that we, it's almost like so that we can show ourselves that we are distracted. Usually we don't think we're distracted, we're just thinking thoughts. But when we think one thought, before that thought is over, we've already started thinking of the next one. It has some vague relationship with the previous one. And then that one morphs into another thought string. And then that goes off something else. And all along this route of our thoughts, uh, from time to time, or maybe most of the time, there's an emotional uh, aftermath. And that emotional component that comes with our thoughts also begins to affect those thoughts themselves that arise up next. And the whole thing basically goes unnoticed until something reaches, uh, reaches a proportion where we do notice. And suddenly we think, oh my God, I can't handle this. You know, but there's been stuff going on way before that that led up to that, that we didn't notice or that we didn't think was that relevant. But that's, uh, and in Buddhism, that's called the endless chain of delusion. That, that thought 
when our thoughts roam like that and bring up all sorts of fears and anxieties. So in order to begin to notice the origin and the origin or to notice that process, we decide on just thinking about one thing or just paying attention to one thing and kind of enter into sort of a personal contract to just pay attention to this one thing. And it can be anything. There's some things that are more uh, auspicious than others. You can just put a rock in front of you and, and just pay attention to that rock. And you agree to yourself, okay, I'm only going to pay attention to this rock for, for five minutes. 24 hours a day, we have 24 hours, five minutes. That's all, that's, a, that's a easy, that's like a good deal, <laughs> you know. I'll just give myself, or I'll not even give myself, I'll give up five minutes of my endless chain of delusion to just focus on one thing, this rock. Or like in uh, here, we have all these uh, meditational uh, wisdom deities. Tara, and there's Chenrezig, and so forth, that express certain qualities, enlightened qualities, like a compassion, love and compassion, a wisdom, strength. And so we can use those, just using our ability to envision, and then not being distracted from that. So these, having pictures around, or if you have pictures, it's so that you become more familiar with the way something appears. And then training to not be distracted from that. We have that capacity. It's like when you fall in love with somebody, you, you do that because you begin to get to know them, get familiar with them. And more and more and more and more, they kind of become embedded in your mind, and at a certain point you realize that you can't get them out of your mind, even if you try. It's a period of time. <laughs> but, you know, you can't. So we have that ability to be undistracted, and not like undistracted, like zoning out, you know, like watching some boring 
screen experience, you know, <laughs> where you're very undistracted, but there's like there's nothing happening in the background in your mind. But when you think of someone that you've gained familiarity with, you there's a there's a non-distracted quality to that. But then there's also an emotional side to it, and all kinds, you know, adoration and respect and all these other qualities that are also associated with that, basically a visualization. And you even carry a picture of them, or you send pictures back and forth, you know, just to, hey, just to remind you to think of me this way. So it's really just a gaining that kind of familiarity with our uh, here in a meditation when we uh, think of these uh, wisdom aspects, we bring them forth as a visualization, but also they carry they carry messages about our true nature that right now we're oblivious to because we're caught on this endless chain of delusion. And so, like when we think of, say, Avalokiteshvara, Chenrezig cures, white form, four arms. We think those four arms remind us that this Chenrezig, as the expression of enlightened compassion, enlightened compassion meaning all pervasive, ongoing, unbiased compassion. Uh, like the two uh, four arms uh, indicate that Chenrezig ha- has uh, is the uh, perfection of the four immeasurable attitudes of love, <laughs> compassion, joy, and equanimity. There are two hands at the heart. There's, uh, there's uh, love and compassion. Joined together, I mean, for you who know, then both for joined together means it's a bodhicitta. So it's a wish-fulfilling jewel. He's holding a wish-fulfilling jewel. That wish-fulfilling jewel is a bodhicitta. And this uh, right hand holds this uh, crystal beads as an expression of equanimity. In a relative sense, all these beads are the same, are equal to each other. There's no bead bigger or smaller than the other. So they're equal in that relative sense. And also they're all crystal, meaning they're all clear. And so they all are equal in uh, having that clear nature, the same as all beings. All beings have this uh, nature, this uh, equal nature. And then the left hand holds this uh, full-blooming flower at his left ear there. 
and that indicates the uh, uh, joyful joyfulness, this open, expansive, flourishing, uh, full bloom, a full blooming of uh, joy, and his uh, uh, on how do you say? Mm, Joy is uh, like the absence of jealousy and envy. Or we could say joy is even the antidote to jealousy and envy. When that person that you're very familiar with and thinking about and caused you such joy when you thought of them, now when you think of them, with this other person, instead of you, you don't feel joy anymore, you feel jealous. And so previously, the situation when you thought of them was one way, and now the same, the same mechanic, the same mechanical system is working, but the experience of it is completely uh, painful. And so jealousy is, comes. So joy is the antidote to jealousy. You rejoice. Oh, it's, I'm so happy that they're with this other person. Better find out now that it's not going to work <laughs> than when it gets even more intense. So we figure some way to rejoice at other, others' <coughs> success. When others are successful, more successful, we rejoice in their good fortune. That antidotes are jealousy, which comes in the wake of something to do with our judgment mind. In that case, the judgment mind is, um, more important than this other person. So I should have that, and I don't. They do, and it's wrong. You know, something along those lines anyway. But it has something to do with our own conceit and feeling of self-importance. So rejoicing in others is a way of antidoting that habit. It's merely a habit. Remember, we were talking yesterday, Buddhism, is, there is no self, but there's a very strong feeling that there is. But there's nothing that that feeling actually corresponds to. So that's something along the line. So then here we, we like our practice here, we use our, the, the strength of our visualization, uh, which, I don't know, in, uh, in Buddhist practice, or in Buddhist practice, yeah, Buddhist practice, I guess we could say, uh, visualization has a very, I think, in our, has a very high place. In our, uh, I don't want to run down you know, it's so tiresome to run down our educational system, you know, it's just boring. Mm -hmm. But there's something uh, about 
our imagination and our visualization that's kind of been sidelined. It's sort of extra because it doesn't really basically have any meaning. But karmically speaking, it has a lot of meaning. And in the, our, especially in the Vajrayana and Mahayana Buddhism, where skillful means are, are uh, very, uh, there's a very broad range of skillful methods, skillful means to uh, bring forth our qualities and our imagination, not imagining those qualities, but, uh, but triggering those qualities through imagination, through visualization, is uh, a very important part of the practice. Because we're always visualizing anyway. If you can see me sitting here, you're visualizing. And what you see when you see me is not what I see when I see me. So it's your visualization, not mine. <laughs> so if you think, sometimes you think a Tara, like this a feminine uh, wisdom, compassionate deity in front, and you think, oh, uh, Pray for the blessings of Tara. Uh, pray for more compassion. Pray for clearing away obstacles for myself and others. Then that's a, that's a meditation practice. And there's a correspondence to it in reality. It's using your imagination, but you're imagining things that actually connect with your nature. You're not just thinking of a big pile of gold or a Lamborghini and thinking you're going to get it by thinking about it. There's, you have to have the karma they have Lamborghini karma. <laughs> I'm not sure, maybe somebody here does. I, I rejoice, I rejoice at your virtue. Uh, but because we have this nature, and when we conceive of, of correspondences to that nature, then it creates an interdependent connection with that nature that cuts through all those uh, incidental factors that prevent us from experiencing that nature. Like a, I don't know. Sometimes my examples are completely wrong. But you you have a solid thing and then you have a laser beam, like a James Bond movie, that we had one laser beam, it goes through metal. It's light, right? It's made of light. And it goes through, so it's not solid. It's, what is light? Is uh, air? Light is, uh, anyway, it's, it's light. And it goes through solid 
material and creates itself. It allows itself to go through. By its own power, it creates its own pathway for itself. Is that right? You get that? A laser beam goes through solid. And what happens when it goes through solid? Keeps going. Right? So it creates a pathway through solidity to itself, for itself. So? So? <laughs> she goes, so? <laughs> so it's the same thing as when we meditate on, the, say, Tara and the radiance of Tara. It breaks through, cuts through all our, our confusion, all our solidity, basically. Uh, all our concepts and judgment and all those factors that are obscuring that nature. And it, and it goes through that nature and finds itself. It authenticates the source of it. You get that? Because there's a connection between Tara, say, in this case, well, we're practicing Chen Rezi now, but Chen Rezi and Tara, any, any, doesn't matter. There's a connection between that and our true nature. That's the skillful means. It's like you have, mm, okay, another example. <laughs> uh, I just escaped. We have potential. You have a potential. Uh, and then you have the wisdom deity. The wisdom deity elicits, elicits, it clears away, it actualizes the potential. If there's no potential, just thinking of wisdom deities, Chenrezy, is just like a religious practice. You know, it's just like a religion. There's just, just me stuck, and then there's you who's not stuck, and that's the end of it. And so from now on, I'm just going to uh, worship you or something like that. Buddhism is not a religion in that sense at all. So if there's no potential, then there's no use, this. But if there's potential and no means, then, then even having the potential it doesn't really matter because you can't, it can't express it. There's no way to express it. So we have these skillful means to, in order to express it, to actualize it. But you have to do it. You have to do the work. Just like somebody tells you, oh, cream. You take cream, and that actually the essence of that cream, or that, the potential of that cream, is a butter. And what are you going to Are you going to believe them or not? You don't know. You've been lied to before. So you don't know. 
But there's a way to find out, and that's through a, a beater. And so a beater requires what? To prove whether that's right or wrong. It requires effort. And so you start beating, beating, beating. And then you notice that this starts to change. The, the cream starts to, not liquid so much, kind of gooey and sticky po uh, points come up, you know. And so then you think, well, maybe there's something to it. I got this far. And so you encourage yourself at that point. You don't have to worry, well, I don't have to 100% believe them anymore. I have my own experience that can take over. And that gives me more energy and to do it. Effort goes easier, because then you get encouraged yourself, not because somebody, you know, before you just maybe had a blind faith, we talked yesterday, you know. You know oh, this person looks like they know a lot about cream and butter. But now it's your own, your own effort that's proving to you, and then through that, then the butter comes. Uh, without the potential, the potential is there, but without being informed of it, shown how to do it, then it's not going to come. But if you're informed about it, shown how to do it, it's still not going to come unless you do the energy part. So faith has its limit. You know, it gets you off your butt. But then you have to create your own faith in yourself, your own confidence. Then in the end, when you go and you start to see this happening, even if people tell you it's not going to happen, you won't believe them. This podcast is supported by the generosity and kindness of Chagdagumpa members and donors. If you're interested in becoming a member, making a donation, or if you want to learn more about Chagdagumpa, feel free to go to chagdagumpa.org.